Um, we start our, 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 continue our series in the commandments. True life, 10. And uh, I want to say, I think Steve Johnson, our amazing associate pastor, built this and put it together. So, you know, credit. Uh, and, and credit to Candice because I think he did it on his day off. So thank you for that. But we're looking at the 10. And the first commandment we're going to look at is, of course, commandment number one. The first commandment. And I've entitled this exclusively his. Because through the Exodus and through the cross, God has demonstrated to all of humanity that freedom from slavery or freedom from sin or freedom from the concerns of life can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we live exclusive loyal lives, and this is what this is all about, exclusive loyal lives, then we can discover a freedom under the one true God is on display. And that's what we want to do, is discover this truth, discover this freedom. The, the scriptures, let me read some scriptures to you. Exodus 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the commandment we're going to be looking at. And really, if we get this commandment right, it is the commandment that makes all the difference. It's repeated again. For the Lord your God is a God of the Lord of lords and Great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. We read, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performs for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down to Egypt... Uh, were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. There's a lot of you, a lot of yours, and there's a lot of statement about that God is our, he is your God, he is you, God has called. God has come to you personally. God is there at work. So how do we understand this commandment? Well, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This commandment here, imagine it like this. It is like we understand that the sun is the center of our solar system. And everything revolves around the sun. You have Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and you move out to Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Neptune, Uranus, and out to Pluto. You have all of, the, all of the planets that rotate around our star in this universe, and it holds it together by its gravitational force. Well, to understand commandment number one, we have to understand that this commandment is the central sun, if you you like, that holds the rest together. It holds it. Because you shall have no other gods before me. This very statement is the, is the pronouncement. Now let's look at that verse. Look at it in your, in your Bibles for a moment. And, and look at ver, Exodus 20 verse 3. We'll throw it back on here. It, it makes this statement. First of all, notice other gods. You shall have no 
other gods. Just that little phrase, other gods. Of course, as you look at this, it's in the plural. So it's taking many forms. Uh, it, it's a point that there is that, the, that people can create deity, and this is what it's saying, and gods out of many different things. They can create gods out of, um, out of a people, that people become gods. And throughout history, we've seen how people have become demigods and how they become gods themselves, Caesars and emperors and pharaohs and, and great leaders who've seen themselves as, as a god, as, as a god that is, that is powerful and present we can see how people can make land into gods and that the land is worshipped and the land can become a god. We talk about Mother Earth and many different things like that. And we know how objects and animals can become gods. We know that in some religions there are thousands of gods that are graven images and and people bow down to these wooden carved images at a stone or wood or any form. And they worship them and they offer things to them. I saw that frequently while traveling through India. I saw the sacrifices of chickens towards gods that looked like monkeys. And gods that were like elephants and, and cattle not being slaughtered or touched. Because the cattle is the god. We understand this. It takes many forms. Really what God is saying in this is there should be no, no rivals. No rivals at all. No other gods. The sense of the text, this little statement, is, suggests a picture of a wife or a husband pursuing another man or woman. It's got that image. It's got that feeling to it. Now, it's been a long time since I've watched soap operas. And I don't know whether you watch soap operas or not. Maybe you do. Uh, Come forward and I'll pray for you. No, it's been a long time. I'll be honest, I watched quite a few soap operas when the twins were really small. I used to take them and it used to their feeding. We were, they were... They were just babies. I had to feed them, juggle them, and, and learn how to change two nappies at the same time in the dark. And all of these, these kinds of things. Now, it came to feeding time just at the time when we'd sit down and we'd switch on the TV and there'd be a soap opera on at around six o'clock in the evening on English TV. So I'd feed the kids and I'd watch a bit of a soap opera. And I don't know anything about Canadian soap operas or, or American ones. I googled the top 10 soap operas, right? And I realized that a soap opera called The Young and the Restless is number one. I have no idea what it's about. I'm thinking it's about young people and they're restless. The next one in the, in the line and famous is one called General Hospital. Never seen it in my life. But I'm thinking it's about a hospital and what goes on. Now, it may be young and restless, general hospital. But the one thing I know from watching English soap operas, and you won't even, well, you know of Coronation Street, EastEnders and... Um, and and Emmerdale Farmer, the three famous ones. Only the English would have a soap opera called Emmerdale Farm. So, and it's about a farm. So, 
So to drive forward the storyline in these soap opera from week after week, what is one of the most conflicting storylines that always appears within families and relationships? It is that chemistry of infidelity that comes into soap operas. Will she? Won't she? Will he? Won't he? And that drives the plot along where there is this kind of wrong attraction that takes place in the narrative. And that's what people keep switching on. You see, what God is opposed in our own lives, in our own soap operas, in the way that we live our lives is this, that we do not have conflicted loyalties, but in our walk with Christ, we are utterly devoted to him and we do not wander from having one God and one God alone is what this commandment is saying. Now, when you live this, it it changes so much. It affects the way we are. See, the next word in that, that verse is um, before me. This is interesting. Before me. It means, you know, literally, don't have them. You can translate this a number of ways. Next to me, except me, over me, to my disadvantage, in front of me, opposite me, before my face, in defense, in defiance of me. You, you, you get this picture, but the best way of looking at this, as you look at this before me, really, I suppose that me should be capital M, because it's talking about God, Yahweh, the creator. But what that's, that little word me creates, and it's mentioned 2,100 times in, script, in the Old Testament, it is often used metaphorically as to refer to a person's face and the whole person. So God's kind of saying, I'm with you. And there's a saying these days, I don't know if, you know, when somebody, it means this, uh, when somebody gets in your face, it means they put demands on you or they get upset with you or get out of my face. Well, I'll tell you what, when it comes down to loyalty, what this commandment is teaching us is God wants to get in your face and say, who is number one? So really, it's not to have anything else, nothing besides me, is the best way to think about it. And this is what he tried to do and drive with the nation of Israel. There was the reality was that the Lord hated competition, although competition throughout Israel's history was exactly what happened. Because Israel had a problem that they would wander off again and again. And the foundation of the commandment, which is here. You you go forward to the second temple generation with with Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 11, you can almost feel the the actor. He was the great demonstrative, prophetic voice. He can hear him screaming it. You, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. And the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Look at you. You've been doing this for a thousand years. You've been doing it and wandering. And now you have more gods than the streets of Jerusalem. It was a battle that the Lord 
had. You see, sometimes we think the real enemy is, the, is atheism. And yet we know that the psalm teaches us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. And sometimes we think really the battle of the church today is all to do with atheism. And, and yes, it is a battle. But there, I tell you, the real battle that we face within our, our lives and as a church is the danger of God's and the work of of our split allegiance between us and the Lord. Joshua himself, the great military leader, the one that took over from, from Moses, um, you can almost hear it in his, the frustration in his breath as he, in Joshua 24 and verse 15, kind of throws back his hands, looks at them and looks at Israel and says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land are you living? But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. See, so he knew that they would wander off. He knew that they would look back to the gods of the Euphrates. He understood that the Amorite gods seemed attractive and immediate, like fast food for the soul, give you a big fix of sugar, but really will steal the very heart and soul of who you are. And Joshua declares, this is my family, and as for me and my family, I will serve the Lord. That is a great statement. And they were, and yet their existence, these idols, these idols made of human hands are really demonic. And the foolishness of idol worship seems, seems a tragedy when you look at the children of Abraham prostituting themselves to false gods who only bring them harm while the true God offers a relationship of love and joy. And when we have other gods at work in our lives and we have other gods at work in who we are, it only brings harm to us when the God Yahweh, the Lord our God, wants to bless us, wants to free us, wants to be with us and wants to bring that change. But the one thing we know about this God is that he is very intense and emotional about the times when people turn away from him. There's a jealousy there. Why would anybody have other gods when they've got the God who created the cosmos? Why would any of us turn to a different direction when God has, has created everything? Well, there's one very clear reason, and this is because we have an inadequate view of who our God is. If we have to go somewhere else to gain something, then we have an inadequate view. And this is what happened with Israel somehow in their history, repeated again and again, turning to idols, turning to the ancient gods, doing this again and again, somewhere they didn't get the connection and they had an utterly and complete inadequate view of who their God is. This is the saddest thing. 
that we are limit the work of God in lives. See, what gods are in the Old Testament? Well, a quick little, little uh, journey through the gods of the Old Testament very quickly. You may be in, interested in this. First of all, there is Dagon. He is the old father of the ancient world. You might even have a photograph of him, uh, not taken on a digital camera, as you can see, but taken, no doubt, from the British Museum. There he is. Dagon was around 3000 BC. He is an ancient god who controls power. The memorable story of Dagon, of course, because he was around with Israel, he's spoken about in the scriptures, was when they captured the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember this story in 1 Samuel 5? And they brought it into Dagon's temple and they placed the covenant again. Yes, we've got this over the Israelites. We've captured the, the, the covenant where the Ten Commandments are kept in. And we'll bring the Ten Commandments commandments in. We'll bring the covenant in and we'll set it before Dagon. And the next morning they went in and what happened to the statue? It hit the floor. It was on his face. And they had to lift it back up. And again, the next morning they came in and he was on the floor again in front of the Ark of the Covenant. You see, there is no greater power than the reality of God the Creator. He was a God of the harvest, the God of the weather, the God of fertility. They all had this going. There was not only um, Dagon, but there was also Baal. Actually, that's not Baal. We missed one out at the beginning. That was, Baal was the one that was on. This is Baal's wife or consort. Um, don't look too hard. Um, Ashethus. She was a, a goddess, you can imagine, of love, a goddess widely worshipped in Palestine. She's spoken about four or five times in the scriptures. She was in Canaanite mythology. She is portrayed in this way. So you have Dagon, you have Baal, who is the most spoken about God in the Old Testament. Um, and then finally, of course, you have Malik, which is the vilest. They're all vile. But of course, he was the god of the Canaanites who they brought and they sacrificed their children because he was the god that took children. Now, this is what the creator god of heaven and earth was up against with his people. His people felt drawn towards gods of power, of nature, of war, of sex, of death, of sacrifice, of even taking their own children and sacrificing. In Leviticus, it talks about this. You see, to worship that, you have got to have a narrow view of your God. To go from the creator of heaven and earth is the narrow view of God. I remember St. Augustine, reading about St. Augustine, and he had a dream one night. And in this dream, he dreamt and saw a boy standing by the side of an ocean, and he had a little thimble. And as he took that thimble, he took the water from the ocean and poured it out. And as St. Augustine was watching this dream, a voice spoke to him 
that this boy would long exhaust the vastness of the ocean before you could exhaust the majesty and the knowledge and the glory of who God is. You see, what idols are, they're nothing. Paul calls them demonic. What idols are, they are inadequate things in the history of Israel that where they disconnect with a God that loved them, a God that cares for them. And what we connect with is a vast ocean, endless of God's glorious, magnificent mystery, power, and wonder. And you can sit by the Pacific Ocean with your thimble and keep emptying it one by one. But you know that the, the, what is out there in God God's kingdom and what you can learn about God, you will empty the ocean before you come to the end of who God is. And yet we put God in such a little box. Three things we've got to understand about Old Testament history here. First of all, the Israelites were called to reject these alternatives and to respond with undivided love for Yahweh, a God whose character far surpasses any other gods. Second thing we realize that for them, idolatry always meant slavery, and it meant pain, and it meant trouble, not freedom. And the third thing is, this is a contrast with the freedom found in God. It reminds me a little bit of, of The Wizard of Oz. Uh, I love that film. But you know, there's that moment in The Wizard of Oz where, where Dorothy with her three companions make it to the Emerald City and they walk into the Great Hall and there's this massive um, wizard with smoke and voice and power and, and it's just going on. And then little Toto... And if you ever want to see a statue of Dorothy and Toto flying to Kansas City Airport, it's right there. It's amazing. And there's people are bowing down and worshipping. And, and, and you get then Toto runs in and, and there's this great scene. He gets behind and starts pulling the curtain. And as they pull the curtain down, they discover it's all a fraud. And there's this little old man who is unimpressive and nothing. And it's all fraud and lies and wrong. See, that is what other gods are. Just fraud. There's only one God. And to say that Christianity is only about keeping the Ten Commandments is completely wrong. Of course it's about living these Ten Commandments, but it's about freedom. It's about life. It's about where our allegiance is that we choose. So how do we work this through now within our own context? Well, first of all, it's, this is all fulfilled in Christ. Just as the nation of Israel was judged primarily by its faithfulness to the first commandment, so too the church must make sure it is understands and applies the first commandment. And for the church and for us as Christians, it applies 
completely to us. The logic of the gospel correctly understood is that God redeems human beings in order that they may be placed in appropriate service to God to reflect his glory and we choose to put God our Savior, Christ Jesus, number one in our lives. That's what we choose. The second for the church implications that the first commandment was completely fulfilled in Christ. Jesus, of course, he was not willing. There's that moment where he's been tempted and Satan comes and offers him the world. So people of the world will worship you. Just renounce God. Just come against him and just turn your back and I will give you all of this. I will feed you. I will give you cities. I will do all of this for you. And what did Christ answer? You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. It was like in the, in the deepest moment of the hardest spiritual attack, what did Jesus do? He spoke back the very power of the first commandment. Listen, devil, you may come against me, but I serve the creator God as number one. And when you experience in your own life the battle and the struggle and the pain and the enemy comes to you and tempts you and he's against the church and against us as in our families, what we need is to step back again in authority and learn what it is to pray and say, no, you know, I have no other gods. The God I serve is the God of heaven and I will serve him only. Third, Christ is the substance of the first commandment. Why? Because Jesus is Yahweh. We find salvation in Jesus. There is only one God. There is only one way to know this God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, how do we, friends here right now, how do we take this and respond to to the first commandment? Understanding that this is fulfilled in Christ. How do we approach this? Well, I want to first of all say that if you think that being a Christian is only about keeping Ten Commandments. It's like saying that the only reason we drive is because we want to keep the regulations, the laws of driving. That's not why we drive, is it? I know many of you. You drive for many reasons, and some of you drive quite fast. And... And when somebody becomes a driver, they, they don't become a driver so they can follow the rules. True. Although we follow the rules, the commandments. Thou shalt not go 100 miles an hour down 33. Thou shalt not do this. But what do we say when we get our license? What do we feel? We feel free because we can go anywhere we want. Anywhere we want. We feel free. Feel free. 
and I could drive. I remember my license. I, I drove all over Britain. I went from place to place. I loved it. And even now, my girls who are 15 can get their license at 16, and I'm terrified. And join me on a 40-day fast. And and I know they don't say, oh, I'm going to get my driving license so I can follow the regulations. They're just going to do that because it's the right thing to do. Right, daughters. But they get it so they can be free to travel. But how, are you free? So I want to challenge you for a moment on this as I close. Do you have idols? Do I have idols? Do I have other gods in my life? Four ways to discern our idols. How can we discern our idols? Four ways, four areas. First of all, we can discern our idols in these four ways. The first way that I discern whether I have got Emphasis in other areas rather than in Christ. Number one is my thoughts. What you think about is probably pretty close to what you are following in your life. One, one way requires looking at our own imagination. I think it was Archbishop William Temple once said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, a true God follower in your heart is that when you are alone and in solitude, it's what thoughts effortlessly rise up within you and demand your attention can be issues in your life than strongholds that can take you away from Christ. So can your thoughts act as God? Well, what what we've been talking about, we've been talking about where our attention is, where our thoughts go, what we think about, about where our loyalty lies. and, And the battle in our mind and our imagination tells a lot about where we should do surgery and how we want Christ to work in our lives. Our thought life tells us whether we need to do something. A second area that helps us discern whether we've got influences in our life is our pockets, (laughs) our money. Another way to discern your heart, true love, is to look at how you spend your money. So look at how you spend your time thinking and look at how you spend your money Jesus said, where your treasure is, there is your, also your heart. Matthew 6, 21. Your money flows most effortlessly towards where your heart's greatest love is. So when you're discerning whether you need to get right with God or allow God to renew your mind or renew your pocket or renew your heart, you've got to look at this and say, where does my money flow actually? Because where my treasure is, that is where my heart is. And I want my treasure in Christ, in generosity, in love, in following him. Third area is mission. 
The third way to discern idols works best for those who have professed their faith in God. You may regularly go to a place of worship. You may have a full a devoted set of doctrinal beliefs. You may be trying very hard to believe and obeying God. However, what is your real, daily, functional salvation? How real and active is God in your daily life? See, yes, you've got a job and you've got a, a calling, but in our workplace, we can't segregate. We've got to see our work as part of our mission. We've got to see our family as an expression of the kingdom of God, that God has called us. And, and, and it's the heart of mission that when we look at ourselves, are we thinking about our life as a calling unto God or is it something completely different? A good way to discern this is how you respond to unanswered prayer and frustrated hopes. If you ask for something, you don't get it. You may become sad or disappointed. Then you go on. And when you pray and work for something and you don't get it, you respond with maybe explosive anger or despair. Or God didn't come through to me and this didn't work out and it really didn't happen. And we can work out in our anger. And, and because it didn't happen, this is what I thought, we can realize that we may have our life's mission in the wrong place. What is our life mission? Is to always accept and put God first. It's hard. The fourth thing, we've got thoughts, we've got our pocket, we've got our life's focus on who we are and what the kind of people we want to be. The fourth thing, we can learn a lot about whether we've got distractions and faithfulness, whether we need to have a work of God in our life. The fourth area is emotions. The final test works for everyone. Look at the most uncontrollable emotions you have in your life. Look at the most uncontrollable. Just as a fisherman looks for fish and knows where to go in the water as it's there, we can look into the water of our lives. And if we see the bubbling of painful emotions, especially those that never seem to lift and those that drive us and those that drive us to extreme and they dominate our lives, these are taken away from our devotion to our God and he wants to set us free. It takes a very strong person to sit down with their journal, with their Bible, in prayerfulness before God and honestly ask the question, what is the dominant thought of my life? What is the dominant drive of my pocket? What am I most concerned about in my mission? And what emotions in my life are out of control? And when you start to apply that through Christ and you allow him to minister in those four areas, you can tear down, tear down the strongholds and allow the Lord to bring freedom to you. Allow him to come. 
What am I saying in all of this with our thoughts, with our money, with our mission, with our emotions? It's very simply this. Will you let the God of heaven and earth, will you let Jesus Christ have number one spot in your life? Number one spot. Will you let him be there? Will you get rid of the things? Will you work at this? That's why we want run Encounter God, to take people through process of this. That's why we encourage you to do hearing God, to learn to listen to God's voice and discern what's going on in your heart, to, to allow the transformation of Christ to be at work within you. And I'll finish on this. This is good news. This is great news. I love being a Christian because of that he has set my thoughts free. He has healed my emotions. He has freed me from the bondage of other things. And God, he is is my focus. He is my mission. He is my life. I'm free. Only because of Christ and the cross. Only because of the blood of Jesus. Only because he comes. I was on walking Black Mountain the other day and uh, spotted a normal coyote. I've taken to putting, keeping my dog on the lead now because I, I know I joke about my dog, but some people have been worried about my spirituality that I said I don't like my dog. I now have prayed about this and I have love for my dog. So... <laughs> I keep the dog on the lead so the coyote won't get it. But I did spot the coyote pack up there and I saw them fly off and, and watched it go off. And something I'm not used to in Britain. The only kind of dangerous dog-like animal is an English fox. But foxes are interesting. Let me tell you what English foxes do. They're, they're little, they're like small dogs, they're... A brownie, rusty colour. They um, have a long, bushy tail. Their markings are quite distinct. You've probably seen them in children's books and so on. And foxes, they always go after the chicken coop. And, and foxes are always around in Britain. But a fox in the country will do this. When a fox becomes absolutely infested by fleas, and, and, and fleas are vile and horrible and itching and biting. A little bit like those emotions I've been talking about. A little bit like our thoughts, the fleas in our brain, the fleas in our lives, the fleas that are there. What an English fox does is goes to a fence row very often where the lambs have been and, and, the, and the sheep and will start to collect wool and get wool in its mouth and will chew the wool and will hold a big lump of wool. The fox will then walk into a brook, a stream, a river. And as it walks in and stands there, you know what the fleas do? They move up. And they keep moving up and the fox goes deeper and the fleas keep moving up and the fleas until the fox head is there and the fleas around its head. 
And then it puts the wool out. And it goes down more and the fleas all go to the wool and fill the wool. And then the fox lets the wool go. And the wool floats down the river with the fleas. Now that's a clever fox. I don't know how they learned to do that. But you know what? You come into the river of God's spirit. You come into the river of God's presence of his, the blood of Christ. You come with all that you have and it's like somehow Jesus is that wall. He becomes the focus of all evil. He becomes the focus of all sin in our lives. He becomes the focus of that. In him. And then it goes. That's what he did on the cross. And so how do we get rid of other gods? How do we deal with our thoughts and our pocketbook and our mission and our emotions and all the things you may feel condemned? Get in the river, will you? Get in the river with Christ and allow him to take them away and let them flow down the river and bring you freedom and bring you hope and allow him to work in your heart. Let's pause now and pray.